Hello everyone, my name is Molly Rowan Leach of Molly Rowan Presents and I am your host for the ongoing dialogue series, Restorative Justice and Social Healing in the United States and Beyond. And it was my honor and pleasure to converse with you all and with the amazing Sarah Van Gelder, who is the feature of this archive in particular from January 10th, 2012. Sarah is the editor of Yes Magazine, also the co-founder of that organization. She's a blogger, author, she's an activist, and she is also the editor of the recent book on Occupy with the rest of her staff at Yes Magazine. This changes everything. We had a very compelling dialogue together. I hope you'll enjoy this archive again from January 10th. 2012 with Sarah Van Gelder, editor of Yes Magazine. Oh, and also please check out mollyrowanpresents.com for all the archives of this series as well as upcoming guest speakers and events. Thank you. And I just want to make sure that I'm live and that you all can hear me. Um, this is Molly Rowan Leach. I am the director of Molly Rowan Presents and your host of this restorative justice and social healing in the United States and beyond dialogue series. Just welcoming you here to this call tonight featuring a very special guest. Looking forward to introducing her in just one moment, but would like to share a few words about the format of tonight's call. We'll be going for about an hour. And at certain points throughout tonight's call, we'll be opening it up for live questions. I also have a couple questions um, that I'll choose from that have been pre-submitted. And um, so in order to ask a question, just go ahead and press 1 on your telephone keypad. And you can do that even if we're not in, in a space of doing Q&A. Sometimes uh, organically, we just open up the call um, to questions. Uh, and pause uh, for that conversation to happen. So again, that's just pressing 1 on your telephone keypad. So without further ado, um, it's my great honor, really and truly, to welcome tonight Sarah Van Gelder. Um, I've personally been following Sarah's work and her work with Yes Magazine for many years and was particularly moved uh, I know that, that Yes Magazine has done quite a few issues um, very specific to prison reform and restorative justice, including last summer's feature issue, um, Beyond Prisons, from summer 2011. And Sarah shared with me tonight in the green room that uh, there's also an issue you can check out in the archives um, from 2000. Uh, I think 2001 actually, but she'll let us know that again, um, featuring whether prisons should be shut down. So a little bit about Sarah. For, I'm sure most of us here know quite a bit about Sarah, but she's the editor again of uh, Yes Magazine. And um, she's also recently been a part of editing This Changes Everything, which is about the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, she and her staff at YES put that together. And it's available at yesmagazine.org. Um, Sarah is uh, 
a journalist. She's an author, and she has done many different things in the world to to help bring to light uh, pertinent and relevant grassroots issues to incite transformation in our systems and communities, and to share through the channel of media uh, the power of community and of alternate ways in, in our society um, towards change. And so it, it's just my great honor and pleasure to welcome you, Sarah, here tonight. And um, would, would love to start out the evening's conversation by, by talking a little bit about um, your thoughts uh, as a major media channel on prisons in the U.S. And, and perhaps emergent or existing solid models of restorative justice in the U.S. and beyond. So again, a warm welcome to you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Molly. I'm really delighted to be here. And one, one of the rewarding things about doing an issue on prisons is that our system here in the United States is so broken that there's just enormous opportunities for improvement. That's both bad news and good news, mostly bad news at the moment, but the potential is there for some, for some very good news. We, we incarcerate, in the United States, we incarcerate more people and a higher percentage of our population than any other country in the world. And you think about some of the countries you think of as repressive, and they don't hold a candle to the number of people we have behind bars. This, this struck us, that yes, as, as being you know, a, a tragic waste of human lives, and we were we have been over the years, as Molly mentioned, um, tracking this topic and looking for opportunities to say something about this. Yes magazine, as you may know, we're always we're always looking for where where are the openings for the kind of transformational change that is so needed today. and the the dysfunction of the prison system is certainly provides that kind of opportunity because, as I said, so much could be improved. But at times, it has felt really stuck. It, you know, there, there were times when keeping people locked up behind bars was a major political talking point, and no politician dared to step out of that kind of a line because they believed they couldn't get elected. So there's been times when it just felt like, you know, it was very difficult to see how we could possibly get out of this, this situation. Recently, that's changed for a few reasons, and that's one of the reasons we brought this issue back up as a as a major focal point for our, our summer issue. The things that have changed is that that first of all, I think it's become very clear to most Americans now just how that how little that system works. That there are enormous numbers of people, millions of millions. Of, we have 2.3 million people in total behind bars, but the the largest group within that are people who are in prison for nonviolent offenses. Many of them are drug offenses. So these people are, are in many cases, people who are, are addicts. They're, they're people who have problems, but they're not necessarily people who are going to benefit from time behind bars, nor are their communities going to benefit, nor are their children going to benefit. So the system essentially is not working. It's not making us safer. The crime rate has been falling, but no more so in, in areas that have a high prison population than in, in ones that have a low prison population. So that there isn't a correlation there. There's really very little, if any, evidence that the prison high prison rates are doing anything to help our society. And they're enormously expensive. And that's one of the reasons we, we believe there's an opening now is because so many state and local budgets are so stretched 
um, the, the notion that we should be spending between $25,000 and $250,000 a year to incarcerate a single person you know, for a nonviolent offense just is no longer making sense to people. And even, even the people who had used getting tough on crime as a major part of their platform in the past are no longer so committed to that when they see just how expensive it is. So it's no longer the right-wing talking point that it used to be. Our budgets can't afford it, and it's not helping. So it seems like there, this is one of those moments when there's really an opening to some major shifts in, in who, is, who is locked up and how they're treated and how, how we approach that whole topic. So at Yes Magazine, we, we wanted to not only say, yeah, it's time to close the prison. Actually, that was the name of our fall 2000 issue, is it time to close the prisons? And at that point, our, our conclusion was basically, you know, except for a few people who are, who are pathologically violent, it probably is time to close the prisons, most of them. Um, and, and we would say the same thing today. So at Yes Magazine, we're not only interested in the notion of, of turning away from something like a dysfunctional prison system, we're interested in what do you do instead? Because it isn't, it isn't really sufficient to just say, well, just, you know, just throw people out on the streets. So we started exploring that question. What can be done before people get into prison, when they're, when they're sort of showing signs of getting into trouble, when they're getting addicted to drugs, and when they have a history of family abuse so that they're in many cases victims of um, violence and abuse before they ever become victimizers. What can you do before people go into prison? What can you do for those people who are in the system? What's, what is likely to increase the probability that they can they can grow through whatever it was, whatever issue it was that brought them into prison, that they can receive an education so that they can get a job when they get out, so that they can heal from, uh, as, as I mentioned, a lot, of, a lot of these folks have been victims of crime and abuse and, and neglect as children and so forth. So they can heal from the things that have made it difficult for them to function as adults. And then what can happen after they get out of the system so that they can reintegrate in society and become contributing members? And that's, that's the kind of innovation that we talk about in this issue. And Molly, I'd be happy to, to go into that in, in greater depth if you'd like. That would be great. And I just would like to comment, if I could, real quick, that um, you know, the, the statistics show, as you're pointing to, Sarah, um, that not only are we housing over a third of the world's prisoners in the United States, but we are also becoming the de facto asylums for the mentally ill, or prisons are, are becoming the de facto asylums. So it's a very complex issue. And one of the things that I have always appreciated about Yes Magazine um, is what you're pointing to as well, and that's the, the solutions focus. Um, yes, we, we bring to, to the light um, what is, is so wrong, but we're also providing, you are also providing uh, uh, many examples. You know, I'm looking, I have a copy of last summer's issue right in front of me right now, and, and it's packed with examples from all over the world, uh, uh, including, of course, stateside, of what's happening as a, as a response to the call to change. So, 
Well, I appreciate that. And one, just one other thing in terms of really elucidating what the, the problem is, I think it's really important not to lose track of the racial nature of our prison system. Because I think the, the whole get tough on crime thing, a, a lot of that was a thinly veiled message about how to keep people of color from achieving right. the same level in society as poor white folks. And that that kind of veiled racial politicking has uh-huh. been a lot of what's what's driven this. And, and if you look at the numbers of people behind bars, they are very disproportionately people of color. For you know, we have some uh, some graphs in the in the magazine that show the number of people who are using drugs, and it's not particularly different across different racial groups, but the number of people serving time for using drugs or for a possession of drugs is just hugely disproportionate. So and so they call it the new Jim Crow, don't they? That's right. We have a, our lead article is by uh, um, Michelle Alexander, who wrote the book The New Jim Crow, and she makes a very compelling statement about just what the nature of that's been. And then, and then the other part of that is that the punishment doesn't end when somebody has served their time, because they become part of a permanent, what she calls an undercast. They, she says they they enter a whole different social universe where they can be discriminated against legally in terms of employment, in terms of housing, in terms of basic public services, in terms of the right to vote. There's all sorts of ways that they become permanently a second-class citizen. So, you know, they may have gotten, they may have done something in their youth that was not the best thing to do, and I think most of us have, but these folks will be paying for it for the rest of their lives, and their children will pay for it because they won't be able to earn the same kind of a, of a living that they would have been able to otherwise. Great. Well, I just um, I'd like to to just perhaps again remind people we have more joining us. Um, one on your keypad will get you into a queue for asking a question or making a reflection tonight. And you can do that at any time throughout tonight's call. Um, so, Sarah, how about if we we talk a little bit about um, perhaps one of the examples that you were struck by? either um, in your process of putting together last summer's issue or even the one uh, 10 years ago um, that you saw as um, just a a powerful example in our world, perhaps here in the U.S. or beyond. I know that you, of course, wrote an article about one of um, Hawaii's women's prisons um, that create a sanctuary. You also have written about... um, uh, New Zealand's practices. So, if you have one that you'd like to share about it, we'd love to hear about that. Sure. Um, there's <clears throat> there's sort of a category of these kinds of innovation that, that they all fall under the category of restorative justice in one way or another. And restorative justice takes the position that instead of looking at the criminal justice system as primarily being about punishing wrongdoing. It's primarily about restoring relationships. And if, if somebody has done a wrong to someone else, part of restoring relationships is to admit the wrongdoing and to try to make it right. So it's not just a, you know, let's just forget about it and move on kind of a thing. It's, it's really confronting the wrongdoing and admitting to it and then looking at how do you, how do you make up for it and how do you take a, a fresh start. 
So the, there's there's lots of different permutations of that, depending on on what kind of a, a situation we're talking about and who's who's involved. The prison that Molly was talking about that I visited in Hawaii is a prison for women, and it turns out that the you know when the the new warden um, warden Mark they call him Mark Patterson um, first came to this prison to to as an employee he started looking at the files of the inmates and realized that. 90% of them, 90% of their crimes were drug-related. <clears throat> and of those of the prisoners who were addicts, 75% had a history of emotional or physical or sexual trauma. So he started looking at these inmates a little differently. You know, he said, yes, these, these are people who've broken the law, many, many of them, you know, by drug possession or things related to their addiction. But these are women who are essentially victims of some serious trauma. What what does that mean? We should be doing here. So he decided he's a native Hawaiian, and so he he brought out from his own tradition the notion of puuhano. I'm not pronouncing it right, I'm sure. But the tradition is that this is a sanctuary. It's a place in Hawaiian culture where people who've broken a taboo or a rule can go. It's also a place where people who are fleeing violence or conflict can go. And they go there for forgiveness and they go there for transformation. So it's a place where they can step outside of their ordinary day-to-day -day lives and become someone that they want to become. And so his, his approach to this women's prison has been to turn his prison into such a place. And it's quite remarkable to spend some time there and to talk to the inmates because they, you know, they'll, they'll come in as suspicious as you would expect in any prison, but you know, when they come in, they find that there are gardens where, that they can help to tend, that, that provide the food for the inmates to eat, that there's traditional culture being taught. They're, they have a tarot patch that they tend. They can learn job skills. The, the person who, um, who cooks at the prison will take in students to, to learn how to be caterers, and the local community college sends teachers to teach cooking, and the inmates can get a certificate in cooking, which then leads to good jobs when they get out. He told me about a welding instructor who was also also came into the prison to teach classes, and so the women could learn a welding craft, which would which also made them very very likely to be able to find a job when they got out. And um, then the other thing that he he did was to make sure there were as many opportunities as possible for the women who were really making progress in dealing with their addiction to hold on to their relationship with their family. So he held, um, he holds family weekends where the kids can come on site and there's a whole set of activities going on, a barbecue and games to play and, and time for the children to be with their moms and to have conversations so that those, those essential relationships with family are able to stay intact. And so that these women, when they come out prison again. They come out having kicked their addiction, having job skills, and having those relationships with their children still intact. So that's quite a different paradigm than we're, we're used to. You know, we're used to, well, a woman goes into prison for, you know, a drug-related crime, for example. There's a lot of punishment. Maybe there's treatment, but oftentimes there's minimal or no treatment. She's with a lot of other women who are equally troubled, but not in a structure that's likely to create a lot of healing. Her, her relationship with her children may be very difficult because it's often very, very hard for them to 
uh, find relatives or, or caregivers who will bring the children to see their moms. So they, they often become very distanced from each other. And that, that, of course, is traumatizing to the children. And then they eventually get out, but, but certainly the chances that they would have gotten an education or job skills is, is quite small. So this is the kind of a system that can actually can actually deal with the underlying problems, the trauma that, that these women experienced, help them heal from that, and help them come back into society as contributing members and people ready to raise children in a way that will be healthy for them instead of perpetuating generation after generation the trauma of, of uh, you know, the addictions and the, and the you know, actually we should, we should talk a little bit about how, how certain populations have been so traumatized, especially indigenous populations, that, that that trauma often unfortunately does get carried on from generation to generation. Right, that's that's a huge one, Sarah. And I I see that we do have a, a queue lining up here in the the group gathered. So um, I, I'd like to to just say one thing too about the um, the the aspect of of the cultural receptivity um, to systemic change. I, I wonder what your take would be on this, and maybe we can go into this after we ask. Uh, Eric, um, I'll, I'll unmute your mic in just a moment and let you say something. Um, but if we could talk about your thoughts, uh, Sarah, um, regarding the you know what you witnessed in Hawaii, and if you if you you know obviously the system itself is is rather a behemoth and it's kind of stuck in the ways that it, it's it's doing things. And um, Warden Patterson, uh, he probably didn't just walk into the prison and literally, with a wave of a hand, transform it. It probably took some, you know, some convincing and some other things, um, and perhaps also the cultural aspect of, you know, um, the hunas in uh, the huna traditions in Hawaii are perhaps a bit more receptive to. To the premises surrounding restorative justice, then perhaps they might be received in some pockets of, you know, of our Western um, stateside culture. So I, I, I hold that for a moment, if you would, and uh, maybe we could go into that for a moment. Um, but I'd like to welcome Eric. Uh, Eric, you're you're live. If you'd like to ask ask a question, welcome. Hi. Good evening. Uh, Eric Hoffner, I work for Orion Magazine out here in Massachusetts, and uh, um, I want to say thanks for this conversation. Really interesting, and I wish I had read the uh, summer issue now. So my question may be answered in that, but uh, I recently wrote a piece for Grist about the prison farm system in Canada and how it's a real model for the world in terms of uh, rehabilitating people, giving them skills that they are proud of, and you know, learning how to take care of animals and create food. You know, working with spreadsheets and things like they've never even heard of, right? Um, so it's a great model, and I was writing about it in part because it's being dismantled, it's being uh, privatized and sold off um, by the Harper government, and I wonder. Uh, if uh, if you track that at all, Sarah, in that in that piece, or if that's on your radar at all, the one hopeful thing about it is that uh, there's a huge grassroots movement of 
local food people who were fighting that, saying, you know, these are really good. We should keep these prison farms, and uh, we don't want to lose this huge food-making asset as well. So uh, back to you. It sounds really interesting. Um, you know, at first when you mentioned uh, prison farms, I started thinking about back to the to the days of Reconstruction in the South when right. there was the effort to basically reinstate slavery through another name, which was by making standing on a street corner illegal so that right. any black person who happened to be out on the street could be swept up in a raid and sent off to work for nothing mm -hmm. on a prison farm, which was essentially reinstituting slavery. Um, right. But it doesn't sound like that. Sounds like, from your description, this is uh, this is the first I've heard of it. Sounds sounds oh, like it yeah. might be no, quite a bit really more enlightened than that. Great. They have like a the one big one outside of um, in Ottawa is a huge dairy farm where the inmates go every day, and these guys sign up in advance. They're like, you know, I gotta get my shift on the farm, you know, and they want to know how my cow's doing and stuff. And they really do go out there. They do they put in crazy hours, um, you know, dawn on, and you know, really proud of their work. Um, and they they get out of prison. They try to get work in the agricultural sector because they've and actually they got a workable skill. What's that? Are they successful in getting jobs once they get out? Uh, you know, it's uh, it's really hit or miss. Uh -huh. um, they don't have any kind of job placement program, which is a bummer. Uh, yeah. but it's the sort of thing that could really be worked in. Um, but yeah. you know, people yeah. from like New Zealand recently sent a, uh, a delegation. To Canada to tour its prison facilities to say, hey, we want to do this here at our home, but now they're they're looking at taking it apart. Anyway, let me send you a link to the article, and maybe yeah, we can please learn do. About Thank it together. you. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, like you were saying, with the taro patch and all that, agriculture is so restorative. Yes, absolutely. And in that in that earlier issue, um, we did a piece on the on a prison farm in Oakland, I believe it was, or the Bay Area. In which prisoners were growing food and for the for the prison itself, and then the the sheriff's assistant who was working with them on that realized that a lot of them were not were no longer in a hurry to leave the prison, which was not a good thing because you want people to leave prison. <laughs> so she actually started a similar program on the outside, in which some of these ex inmates could could continue growing food and give it away to food banks or start small businesses related to marketing that food. And uh, that's that's been quite a quite a story. But I absolutely agree. I think there's something incredibly healing about getting your hands in the soil and feeling like you're you're you can watch things grow and you can be part of that cycle of life and part of that you know re restoration. So yeah, I, mm -hmm. I think it's a great story. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Um, thanks for bringing that to my attention as well. Um, and just a note too, there's a program in Boise, Idaho that um, I actually happen to be a part of the founding uh, of that organization. Um, it's called Sustainable Futures. And although they're not doing uh, farming, they're actually recycling bottles um, into usable glassware and have um, over the last couple of years, gotten most of the, the local restaurants and cooperatives to to use their glassware in you know in their um, their food service, as well as mm -hmm. you know in in the boutiques in the uh, like in the cooperative grocery in Boise, and that mm -hmm. program is uh, one of the shining examples to me of mixing 
like a creative need um, in in the way of uh, what Van Jones would call what green jobs um, mm -hmm. with with the addressing of uh, of of transforming it into more of a human based system um, where we're looking like you were saying Sarah at bringing people um, back to uh, a place of strength and wholeness, um, and also how um, Mark Patterson in your article here speaks to, you know, he can't send these women away with sad faces. They're just going to come back in a couple of weeks, and so there's, there, you know, there's a deeper addressing happening while you're also either getting your hands in the soil or, um, you know, finding ways to help sustain the earth. Um, right. And 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 it is you know it is true that we we need to find bridges on the outside. Um, you know, you bring up Eric that uh, that these farms um, it, it does make it difficult for uh, some of the you know some of the the people on the inside to probably even want to leave because of that experience of of actually finding themselves through that. And so it, it, it is very key and critical to, to implement that programming on the outside in a creative community-based and supported way. Um, so uh, Sarah, could we turn back for just a moment to that question of, of cultural receptivity um, around the Hawaii prison and, uh, and just your thoughts on, do, do you think that, that, um, that Warden Mark was able to to do what he did um, so extensively because of, of their, their cultural kind of paradigms there around, um, as you were saying, the pu'u honua, uh, which is a sanctuary where those who break taboos or rules um, can go for forgiveness and transformation. That, that kind of thinking um, seems to be uh, a fairly normal foundation of their, their cultural identity. Whereas here in the United States, uh, of course, we have uh, so many various um, identities. But but you know what what's missing here in the U.S.? Why are we so stuck? And how did Warden Mark have such success? And and it looks like in a relatively short time, from your opinion. Well, I think there is a cultural aspect to it that it, it resonates with people to um, to use ideas or concepts like sanctuary that, that people are already familiar with. But we have some of those in the rest of the United States. I mean, to the degree that Christianity is, is one of the dominant frameworks in the United States, Christianity has the notion of, of forgiveness as, as very key to it. So the notion that we we might have a criminal justice system that's based on you know, acknowledging when wrongdoing happens, but then working towards making making wrongs right, and then finding ways to bring that relationship back to wholeness through forgiveness. That that resonates, I think, pretty deeply also with with people who who look carefully at what what the teachings of of Jesus Christ were about. So I think yeah. you know I think there are a lot of different the other the other um, mainstream we have to draw on here is the um, indigenous traditions of North America, which also have um, have is a source for the the idea of a circle of a 
um, circle in which different people, each person speaks their own truth and each person gets listened to as long as is necessary for their full story to get out. In that issue we did back in 2000, we had a story about the Navajo justice system. <clears throat> the Navajo nation was decided that they were throwing too many of their own members behind bars and they really wanted to find a different way to deal with some of the wrongdoing. So they started what they call peacemaking circles, which, which is a modern variation on a very traditional idea. And one of the remarkable things that comes out of those circles is you often find out that the perpetrator is also the victim, as we were talking about earlier. So there's an example that they talk about in this, in this article about a woman who had been drinking too much and acting out and, and you know, maybe she'd been attacking some people. So she came in front of the peacemaking court because it was really inappropriate behavior. But she came with her whole family. And when she was in that circle, she explained that she'd been, you know, she wanted to give up drinking, that she was an alcoholic and, wa and had been having a hard time doing that. But there was something underneath that, which is that she'd been sexually molested by a relative. And so the family found out, you know, this person who we thought was the perpetrator is also the victim. And the whole family needs to come around to what are we going to do with this situation? How are we going to help support her in pulling herself out of this, this personal tragedy, as well as asking for accountability from her? So I think if you, you know, if you look at who's actually in prison, an awful lot of the time that's the case, that they are both victims and perpetrators. Being a victim does not give you the excuse to be a perpetrator. It doesn't make it okay, but it means there's usually a larger system at work, and everyone has some accountability for that. Right. That's that. That's directly related too to that intergenerational kind of a wounding that you were speaking to a moment ago. That um, if we can look at, at the what, what's underneath. Um, in the reciprocation and the cycling of these issues, then we're getting closer to the heart, perhaps, of, of how also to provide solutions. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really appreciate you weaving it back around to the indigenous. I, I think uh, I have so much respect and uh, deep honoring of indigenous traditions, not only in the North American Indian traditions, but also in you know in, in our world, and I think that if we are to recover a sense of of um, of solution-based um, systems, then 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 we need only really to look at what's already been done. Uh, you know, you mentioned the circle and. And of course, restorative circles and um, the Haudenosaunee peoples of of North America, I believe, up up in on the eastern ridge uh, in New York, um, would you know they would they would start out all of their processes simply by giving thanks, and so there was this cultural um, tribal understanding of of interconnectivity. And a worldview that that was uh, inclusive and interconnected, and and so yes, the you know the, the principles um, that you were speaking to also of uh, Christianity and um, and forgiveness. I believe too that we all uh, deeply want to to be in that space 
and and I just wonder, um, you know, are are we getting closer to that in in shifting the actual system? Um, I, I I'm thinking about my own experience in walking into a women's prison in Idaho, where my mother actually happens to be and has been for 13 years. She she's one of the mentally ill, you know, the millions of of mentally ill that are. Um, within the system, and um, and then hearing stories, you know, from some of the other inmates within that correctional system of of what's still occurring, and um, feeling befuddled at times, I guess, as to how how it's going to, um, you know, how how it's going to shift, and 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 if it will, and so it's so great to see. Again, um, people like uh, Warden Mark over in Hawaii actually doing it. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things that he said is that that it used to be that that we all that we took care of each other. That we were, you know, in, in a neighborhood or in a community, in a family. There is no such thing as throwing somebody away. We deal with mm -hmm. them. And I think that that whole notion, the, the throwaway society, that we can throw away our stuff when we're done using it, that we can throw away people who inconvenience us or who scare us, you know, that whole notion of a throwaway society is really on its way out. It is so dysfunctional. <laughs> so I think what, what's happening now is people are starting to say, okay, we're we're not going to. I'm not saying necessarily the majority culture yet, but I think the direction is we're not going to be throwing things away anymore. You know, we don't have mm -hmm. the natural resources to throw things away anymore, and we don't have the human resources. We each human being is valuable, and every community mm -hmm. is affected by every single person in that community. And somehow we have to learn how we take care of one another, how we deal with each other when it's difficult. It's not always easy because people are people, <laughs> but throwing them away isn't the answer. Right, and that's um, that might be the moment where we touch on the Occupy movement, because I know that you've been really focused um, deeply on Occupy, and as I mentioned earlier, you edited along with uh, Yes Staff um, this new book. This changes everything, and um, it is a very powerful time to be alive. Uh, and it, it seems like what you're pointing to. Uh, with that right now is that there, you know maybe there's a, this wave happening of cultural awareness of world awareness where I mean the Occupy movement is one of of many movements that we've seen in this last year. It's been a, an incredible year of the people's voice, has it not, Sarah? Oh, it has. It's just been amazing, and and I think one of the places I think there's a couple places where there there is some overlap. One is that the prison system in, in the United States has been morphing into a prison industrial complex so that there's actually now large corporations that make an enormous amount of money by imprisoning people. And some of those corporations through organizations like ALEC have been actually writing the laws that increase the number of people that are incarcerated. There is some excellent... Can you repeat that? <laughs> Sorry, so what, what was that, ALEC? ALEC, A-L-E-C. I don't remember exactly what it stands for, but it's an association of legislative officials and corporations. And the legislative folks get to go there free. The corporations, uh, the representatives of corporations spend a, a good amount of money to be able to rub elbows with at these conferences with 
people who are writing the, legis the state legislation. And this, I was going to tell you one specific story there, which in these times and um, NPR reported, which was about how the draconian immigration law got passed in Arizona. That law was drafted at one of these conferences where the representatives of private prisons were looking at ways to fill up their prisons. Well, mm -hmm. one way to do that is by throwing a whole bunch of immigrants into prison for long periods of time, not for committing crimes, but for simply overstaying a visa. So there's been this effort on the part of the prison industrial complex to actually create new laws or to to stiffen laws in a way that then fills their prisons and then, you know, they're draining the public coffers. They also go to small towns that are economically distressed and say, you know, here's this great economic development plan for you. You can have a prison and, and lots of jobs. So it's, it's creating this just extraordinarily uh, nasty kind of an economy based on locking people up for, for far longer than could possibly be justified and it, it you know perhaps creates some profits for some people and some jobs for some people but it's just the wrong way for us to be spending public money. And wasn't, there was a whistleblower that, that brought them to the, that brought Alec to the light I believe in the last year. Um, it's the American Legislative Exchange Council and if you're interested in looking at their website, it's alec.org. And to me, at first glance, they're, um, surprise, surprise, <laughs> reporting themselves as a, uh, you know, as a, a nonprofit organization, um, but, but underneath, they're really a, a lobbying organization. Is that true? Well, they, they bring together corporations that can afford to spend a lot of money to get access to members of the legislatures. So, you know, this is clear is it's a clear pathway for big money to affect politics, which is of course one of the key complaints of the Occupy movement is that we've our whole government and political system has become corrupted by the spending of Wall Street and big corporations and the one percent so that our society is no longer functioning for the middle class and ordinary people. It's functioning for those people who can afford that kind of access. And so, yes, the, the Occupy movement is just such an important new thing on our horizon because they're the ones, this movement is the place where that is really getting spoken out loud in ways that few people have been willing to talk about in the past. So mm -hmm. we just we just did a book on that. This changes everything, and that was you know when we talk about what has the Occupy movement changed, that naming of what is happening in this particular moment in our history is such a powerful part of that. Mm. Well, Sarah, uh, there was a question submitted by Robin, um, and she uh, since we're on the topic of Occupy, I'd like to go into it for a moment. And she asks, um, could you address next best steps for the young people who are hanging out in Occupy sites without a sense of direction of where to go with it? Um, she says she's talked with her local young folks and, and feels a need for some mentorship. They, they feel a need for some mentorship from elders. Um, she oh. says, is there a direction that this movement is going nationally that you see and or endorse? And thank you, Robin, yeah, for that question. Yeah, great question. I think there is a lot going on, and that just you know the the first thing to 
to say about that might be that this is this is a really good reason why more seasoned activists it's a great time for you to spend some time with those young activists and sharing not only your experience but your your hopes about what could happen next but let me just mention a few things I think that are happening that a lot of the sites of course were shut down by a lot of the occupation the encampments were shut down by police or by cold weather but People have continued to do a lot of work on foreclosures, occupying homes before to help prevent evictions, occupying eviction courts. In Harlem, they occupied a building to prevent uh, a landlord from shutting off the heat. There's been people um, in Iowa occupying the caucuses, both the Republican and the Democratic campaign headquarters, saying, we need you to address these questions about money and politics, you know, no matter which candidate you are, this, these are questions the American people want to have answered. There are um, people occupy, planning an Occupy the Courts Day, which is directly related to Citizens United. Citizens United, you may, may remember, was the Supreme Court decision that opens the floodgates to unlimited corporate spending on elections. And that um, second an second anniversary is coming up on January 20th or 21st, and so there will be actions all over the country on that. There's people talking about neighborhood assemblies, about bringing general assemblies to our communities all over the place and bringing ordinary people together to say, you know, what what's important to you and what do you want to change? Not waiting for our political candidates to set the agenda or for the political parties to set the agenda, but what is the agenda of ordinary people and what do we want in our neighborhoods? And I'm involved in a, in a local group that's doing that um, here in Kitsap County. Um, so I think there's a tremendous amount that, that is happening. It's happening in a, in a slightly less public way because people are not so much outdoors. There's actually going to be a social forum of uh, of the Occupy movement in, in Olympia in February, which will bring Occupy people together from around the country. There's a lot of networking going on online. If you if you look at sites like InterOccupy, you can find some of that going on. And there's telephone calls every just about every day of the week by different groups involved in the Occupy movement. I think the main thing is to keep the the not only the the complaints front and center that the the society cannot function if it's only oriented for the benefit of the 1%. It needs to be oriented for the benefit of the 99%. But the other part of that is to keep in mind the question of what kind of a world do we want to create? And can we create it ourselves right where we are? Can we begin that, that uh, generative process of making the world we want to live in? Many of the Occupy sites have done amazing work on that in terms of having general assemblies that are conducted by consensus and having food that's available for everybody who shows up and you know, really starting to think about what are the values underlying that, <clears throat> that world and, and can we begin in, in whatever way, small or large, wherever we are right now, creating that world because the world is all oriented around the 1% really is not functional anymore. So let's, let's not just wait for the right agenda in terms of a presidential candidate. Let's, let's create our own agenda and then hold our political leaders to it. I'm guessing that in This Changes Everything, the, the book that has just come out, um, you, you go into that more deeply. But is there anything else uh, that you could give us a, a snapshot into um, for those who haven't yet purchased this book? It's only $6.95, by the way. 
Um, and you can find it at yesmagazine.org. And um, Sarah, you also have a blog, which is yesmagazine.org backslash SVG blog. That's Sarah Van Gelder blog. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to share about this changes everything um, and what, what you go into? Well, one of the other things that, that I noticed about the people who were spending time at the Occupy sites is that, is that they were able to mix it up in a way that they may not otherwise be able to in, in ordinary society. You have, young, you, know, you have students who are just out of college, maybe have a huge amount of student debt and they can't get a job. And you have homeless people who have been out on the streets maybe for years or even decades, many of whom are veterans who are uh, coming back from from war traumatized. And these two different groups might not have met up otherwise. They might not be having conversations. But the occupation sites have been places where people with very different backgrounds have been encountering one another and getting to know one another more deeply than they can just by reading each other's blogs or each other's you know, articles or Facebook pages. You know, they're, they're actually getting to know each other as human beings and understanding much more deeply what it means to be part of the 99%. Because 99% is a, is a very diverse group of people. So I think that's incredibly important. It's just as important as all of the marches and everything else is going on. It's just that sense of, of the humanity and, and understanding the issues mm. that they encounter so that we can each take up causes that are not just for our own little narrow self-interest. Because I think sometimes... Sometimes on the left, the, the self-interests get very, very narrow. And really what we want is, a, is, and I think the Occupy movement does beautifully, is to say, let's do things that work for all 99% of us, and really all 100% of us, but we really work for everybody. And then the other thing I think the, the movement has done that's so important is to, is to turn on its head that, that shame that so many people have felt when things didn't work out for them economically. You know, a lot of people have been losing their homes, losing their jobs, can't pay back their debts. You know, it's just, it's grueling in a, in a society that tells you that your self-worth mm -hmm. should be based on how much you have and how much you mm -hmm. earn. And people are, you know, at first I think many people just thought, well, well I must be a failure. I don't understand what's mm -hmm. happening, that, you know, that all these things are happening to me. And the Occupy movement, I think, by, by actually getting out on the street and by, by being as militant as they have, have shown people, you know, this is not just you. This is happening to millions of Americans. You don't need to be home alone, ashamed of what mm. has happened to you. You've, you've played by the rules. You've worked hard. It's mm -hmm. because the system is rigged. It's not because of any failings that this right. is happening. So that Ooh, releases that a is huge powerful. amount of transformational <laughs> energy. Yeah, I mean, that, that means... Yeah, you're really hitting a the nerve there, Sarah. I don't, I, I don't think I've heard that put so so well and eloquently and, and so simply, I mean really, uh, about the shame piece and the languaging even in our credit card processing systems. You know, you've been approved and, um, you know, uh, all the little subtle messages that we've, you know, we've bought into um, and now those messages are being removed from our shoulders, the burdens, you know. I'm not saying, you know, don't pay your bills, but, um, you know, you speak powerfully to an aspect that I think we've all shared collectively for you know, as long as I'm aware of, uh, of, of, of being a part of this culture and, and um, 
you know, for, for myself, the shame that has been uh, an aspect of, of, of being an important voice within the system, but also struggling with, uh, you know, with, with the rigged system, as you, as you say. So thank you for that. Very powerful. And one of my hopes is that that sense of compassion for ourselves will also extend to being compassionate for other people who are also struggling, including mm-hmm. people who are just out of prison. Because we haven't spoken a lot about this, but, but the people who have spent time in prison are, you know, I, I think I mentioned, are sort of treated as, an, as like a second-class citizens. They're just not able to have the same rights as everybody else. And, and you know, we, we do not need to accept that. I think we, we, we need to look at, our, at, at how we feel when we're put in that kind of shamed situation and we need to reject shaming of other people. Every single person has a has a right to full participation in our society. And I think I think that's part of our moral stand at this point in history is to is to just make that really clear. Mm, thank you for that. I I was told by a young woman who who happened to be in, in prison um, that and who was pregnant and had had to give birth while she was in prison that she was shackled. To the bed while she was birthing, and then when she got up, uh, because of the pain and contractions, they belly uh, they belly chained her and shackled her, even in that process. So, uh, there and of course there's 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 outright abuses like that, and then there's um, you know the stigmatization that can be much more subtle um, when there's the reentry process happening. Um, we all know that. Uh, you know, people are going to be looked at in a certain light until we do take that stand that you're speaking to, which that, that program I mentioned, Sustainable Futures, was one of the programs that was attempting to take a stand um, for, you know, for women who were coming out of, of prison and to speak on their behalf and, and to support them in the process of applying for jobs. And, you know, the, the shame surrounding checking that box that says, have you ever, you know, committed a felony, or however it's stated on on job applications? So, um, I know we're we're getting close to to wrapping for the evening tonight, Sarah. But but there is um, I'd like to take another question from from the circle tonight. So, uh, if I might, uh, Joyce, go ahead. You're live. Welcome. Hello. Nice to be here tonight. Thank you for your uh, beautiful service and this dialogue. I really appreciate it. My question is, um, in, in observing the Occupy movement, I have a lot of friends who are involved in that movement, and I also am sandwiched between extremely conservative parents and their friends who are extremely conservative uh, with a deep open mind about how this is all unfolding. I tend to be... Um, liberal in my beliefs, however, I'm very open-minded about what actually is happening. There is such a uh, divergence and an anger from the conservative wing around the Occupy movement. I'm wondering if there's anything being done to help integrate and solicit an understanding of what actually is happening there. And... um, um, 
and any efforts that might be out there to solicit the 1% instead of identifying them as the other or the perpetrator. Thank you. Great questions. Yeah, thank you. Um, in terms, let me start with the one percent. There's there's a website that's called We Are the Ninety Nine Percent, which has been featuring different individuals holding up a sign explaining their own life story and how they wound up being in in dire financial straits and you know from childlessness to student loans that can't they can't pay off and so forth. But there's also a site just like that for the one percent, which is people who recognize that they're very fortunate to have the wealth and privilege that they've had, and they care about what happens to our society as a whole. So rather than thinking that somehow that makes them superior or that they don't have to worry about other people, these are folks that have chosen to act in solidarity with the whole, to look for a society that works for the whole. So I think that's a very healing thing when that happens, and I think it, it tends to be reciprocated. Um, in terms of outreach to conservatives, I think you know it's interesting. I don't think the, a lot of Occupy movement folks would necessarily say they are liberal, liberal or conservative. They're very resistant to being pigeonholed as part of any political effort, you know, politically democratic or republican. That you find a lot of Ron Paul supporters, for example, at Occupy sites. There's a group called um, Occupy Marines, which is made up of Marines who are very committed to the movement, people in the military, either current or former military, who are seeing that they're part of the 99% and that their their wages and benefits and their long-term security is, you know, is in question as well. I think they're, they're uh, you know, people from across the spectrum are seeing that their own... Um, hold on the middle class is really in jeopardy. Now some people will blame the people who are, you know, becoming insecure, impoverished. They'll blame that and say, well, it was your own fault. But you, you don't have to look very deeply into the statistics to see how hard a lot of people are working. You know, a lot of the working poor are working two or three jobs, but they just are not earning the money that will allow them to have a middle class way of life. And I remember when I was growing up, you know, somebody could go to college on what you earned over summer vacations and after school. You could you could work your way through college. Well, you can't do that anymore, you know, except in very, very exceptional circumstances. There's so many ways in which just getting our basic needs for a home and for health care and for an education are out of reach, are, are becoming increasingly out of reach for ordinary people. So that's that's the situation we're in, and we have an economy that is structured to systematically redistribute wealth from ordinary people to the wealthy. Um, so, you know, it, it, I, my own view is that that it's really important to keep that kind of open-mindedness, and that I think if you if someone goes to an Occupy site or goes to an Occupy event, that they are normally greeted with. Um, an openness and willing to dialogue, but I'm sure that's not always the case. Um, but I, I do find the, that a lot of times the Occupy, um, the, the unwillingness to be pigeonholed means that people who show up are not, you know, immediately polarized into this group or that. And in fact, I did hear about one place where the, the Occupy movement and the Tea Party were, were working in tandem to make sure that certain rights to uh, express opinions were, were maintained. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce, for that, that question. 
And um, thank you so much, Sarah, for this powerful conversation tonight. And um, I just want to remind everyone, uh, I, I myself am a Yes Magazine subscriber, and I highly recommend, if you aren't yet, uh, that you go check out yesmagazine.org. Subscribe to the magazine, and also check out uh, the book, This Changes Everything. Sarah, um, I mentioned, has a, a blog there as well. And uh, you'll see her prominently internationally speaking towards various aspects of social change and transformation. And so again, Sarah, it's, it's been just a great pleasure hosting, um, hosting you and, and conversing with you and the group tonight. And I just wish you all the best in this coming year with all of your work. And again, uh, that, that issue, that, or the two issues that we spoke about quite a bit tonight, you can also find, I'm, I'm guessing, right, Sarah, um, in the archives at, uh, yes. at yes. Yes, yes Magazine. People can, can even access the one from 2000 as well, I'm assuming. That's right. Yeah. yeah On great. the left side of the website is a, is a link to Magazine Archive. And the articles we were describing are online and others as well. I, uh, there are so many other examples of restorative justice that, that I wish you could have had a chance to get into. But you can find those articles online and, and find lots more examples there. Great. Well, I just want to also mention um, this week is uh, a, a powerful week of conversations for this series. Of course, tonight with Sarah and then this coming Thursday with uh, Dr. Don Beck. Um, please join me on Thursday also at 5 p.m. Pacific for Don Beck. Um, and then uh, also upcoming guests include uh, attorney Michelle Michaud from the Michaud Law Group, uh, an example of a lawyer doing some powerful work in social healing and restorative justice. So um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us tonight. And I will be posting the archive from, from this conversation at mollyrowanpresents.com, which is the website that lists all of the guest speakers and uh, upcoming events in this series. Thank you so much, and have a great night.